Take your Bibles tonight, turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. It is an honor uh, to be able to speak tonight from this pulpit. And it is always amazing to me when I think about uh, what seemed like just yesterday when Pastor picked uh, my wife and I up from the airport. Uh, and it was our, really our first time to come to California. Uh, we had seen a little bit of Northern California on our honeymoon. And the reason we went to California on our honeymoon was because we grew up on the East Coast. We would never get to California again. And five months later, we moved here. Uh, and I remember when Pastor picked us up and he was interviewing us, it was our first time on the 405. <laughs> Growing up in Georgia, that was just really, really different for me. And uh, what was even more different was the fact that Pastor wanted to have a conversation with us while he was driving, uh, looking back at us. And so that was like, I guess all California drivers drive this way. And so uh, we're just glad to be alive and be, <laughs> be here tonight. That's been 24 years ago. And... Uh, my wife and I, we basically, this, this is our only place of ministry. We've grown up here. Our, our kids are growing up here. And uh, a child now that is getting close to graduating from college, one getting ready to graduate from high school, uh, one that's in 10th grade, but reminds me that she is almost old enough to drive as well. Uh, then I have my fourth daughter's in junior high, and that's sort of amazing for me to get my mind wrapped around that as well. And just one left in the elementary. So we're counting down the days, I think. And uh, so it's just a blessing to see what God has been doing. Uh, all these years, and to see the faithfulness of our pastor, and to just to see the way he's led us, and stay true to the book we're going to talk about tonight, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, tonight's a little bit different of a Bible study. We're not necessarily expositing a passage from the Bible. We're talking about the Bible, and so uh, I want you to understand a little bit about where I come from. I, I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, my dad was a pastor. My granddad was a pastor. Uh, my great-granddad was a pastor as well. Uh, and so I, I grew up going to church. I, I really didn't know anything different. And I really didn't know there was a such thing as even different Bible translations. I didn't even know that existed. Uh, I went to church one time on a weekend with my, my, my aunt and uncle. My parents had decided to take a weekend away and left us with the family. And they brought us to their church. And, and I grabbed a, a Bible out of the pulpit, or out of the pew in front of me, and it was a bigger church, and I had grown up in a little country church. I was a little overwhelmed with the size, and, uh, and I grabbed this pulpit, and I was amazed at how poorly this pastor read. I was probably 10 or 11, and in the back of my mind, the whole service, like, how could a guy who reads so poorly pastor a church so large? It was amazing to me. And I became fascinated on it, and I began to check everything he read against the Bible I had taken from the, pulpit, the pew there. And afterwards, I asked my, my aunt that question. I said, how, how does your pastor... Wouldn't it be better if he just had somebody read for him? Uh, because it's a little embarrassing. Uh, and like, what are you talking about? I said, I, I followed along with him in the Bible. He, he, he slaughtered it. He didn't read very well at all. And she says, which Bible were you reading from? I said, the one from the pew. Well, which color was it? And I, and I told her, she says, oh, that's our Sunday night Bible. And I just didn't know. That's the first time I ever, you mean there's like more than one Bible. I just, it, that never even dawned on me. Uh, and then years later, I had graduated from uh, college and married. And, uh, you know, when you get a college degree, now you have all the answers. <laughs> and so uh, I was invited out to, to breakfast with uh, a pastor in another state. And uh, somebody invites me out to breakfast. It's God's will. I, I didn't even have to pray about it. He was going to pay for it. And I felt like this was of the Lord. He had sanctioned it. It was part of this predetermined path for my life. And I was so grateful to be a part of it. And as I'm eating this breakfast, he's pulling out a legal pad. He's pulling out these different books and stationing them there in front of him. And I'm just sort of eating, like wondering what he's going through. And, 
And then he says, now you're, uh, you're out there in California, right? Yes, sir. And you graduated from this? Yes, sir. I graduated from that Bible college. And uh, you're, you guys use the king? Yes, sir. And, and my mind is like, doesn't everybody? No, they do not. And uh, he began to show me questions and things I'd never heard of. And, and I had my, my simple answer, and it just, it just, I realized that not only did I not know the answers, I didn't know the questions. And he had tried to plant a, a seed of doubt in my mind on that particular occasion so that maybe I would espouse his, uh, his position. God has not given us a spirit of fear, and God really hasn't given us the ability to doubt his word. That's not God's goal for our life. God wants us to trust his word. And so as a result of those questions, I began this journey, and what he had hoped would maybe detour my path actually strengthened my resolve for the Bible that we have held to at this church since it was founded with Pastor Chapel's ministry. And tonight I want to share some of those principles with you. And I want to start in Psalm 119, verse number 89. Psalm 119 is an interesting chapter Every single one of these verses, in one way or another, connects to the Word of God. It's really a, a poetic, a mnemonic tool that the psalmist uses. He, he takes every letter of his alphabet, the equivalent of our A to Z, he uses his Hebrew alphabet. And verses 1 through 8 all start with that same, same Hebrew alphabet. And then verses 9 through 16 start with the next letter. And every eight verses, he just sort of groups them together, and he, he basically goes through his entire alphabet. And sort of one of the underlying themes about this is even though he's exhausted his alphabet, he hasn't exhausted everything he can say about the Word of God. There's still so much more we can learn about God's Word. And one of the verses he says is here in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And tonight we want to understand not only is God's word settled in heaven, but we need to make sure it's settled for us here on earth as well. And tonight some principles, some necessary ingredients on this trusted translation that we have. Why we can trust it, what do we look for as far as what makes a translation trustworthy. And tonight some three basic principles I hope will help us be able to answer some of the questions that sometimes people have. Do you know concerning inspiration, I, th I think we would all agree that the testimony in the Bible is clear in this matter that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is what Paul told to Timothy. Nobody really questions that in our, in our church. We understand from the Word of God that the Bible is our final source of authority in matters of faith and practice, and we understand that this Bible was inspired. God gave His Word. It's from the Lord, not man. It's not man's idea. These are the very words of God. It's God breathed. And we understand that process called inspiration, that when God gave the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were directly from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who moved men to write the words that, that would later on become the scriptures that you and I still follow 21 centuries later. When we think about this process, there's a process, and this process leads us to a product. The Holy Spirit takes holy men. And these holy men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write for us what becomes the holy scriptures. It's a holy book. This is the Word of God. It's not like the books we had in our English classes and literature. It's not like Shakespeare. It's not like Beowulf. It's not like whatever other thing we would want to put in that context. It's a book that's unlike any other book. It's the Word of God. When I read the Bible, sometimes I have to remind myself, this happened a long time ago. Because when I read it, it doesn't seem that way. When I read it, it's like I'm, I'm in the story. Why? Because the Word of God is quick. It's alive. It's not a dead book. You know, when I was in my 
high school English class and was asked to read Beowulf, I never had the sensation that I was reading a living letter. Not once. I felt like it was very much dead and I wanted to die with it. <laughs> Beowulf never inspired me to do great things for God. It was, it was ancient, it was dead, it was weighty, it was incomprehensible to me. It was like the question in my mind was, why must I be tortured this way? But I've never had that experience with the Bible. When I read it, it's, it's fresh, it's new, it's, it's God speaking to me today. Amen. I'm not reading a history book, though it talks about history. I'm reading the living Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. It's the Word of God. And this process that the Holy Spirit superintended with the men that He chose has given us a word that is trustworthy for us today. We talk about inspiration. We, we talk about even preservation. We know that God promised to preserve this word from generation to generation. If He didn't, inspiration is useless. If the Bible is only good for the first century, then we really should just pack up and go home. If God isn't going to preserve it from generation to generation, I need the Word of God today. I don't need to know that they had it back then. I need it today. I need the wonderful words of life. And so we talk about preservation, and that's really something that the Bible is clear on. And we don't really question that. But sometimes the question that comes up isn't about inspiration and isn't about preservation. Sometimes the question that comes up is more about translation. Which translation do you trust? And I'll be honest, when I read my Bible, I, I don't read it in Hebrew. Sometimes I may look at it and pretend like I'm reading it just to maybe surprise somebody, but I have no idea what it's saying. My devotions this morning wasn't in Greek. I read English. And I would venture that most of you did as well. The very fact that you and I can read the Bible in our language is because someone somewhere had a burden to get the Word of God to our language. They translated it. We need the Word of God to be translated for our generation. We need the Word of God in our language because I'm not reading Hebrew. I'm not reading Greek. I'm not reading Aramaic. I'm reading the language that God has given for me to speak, my native tongue. And when you think about that and you begin to think about the fact that there are still so many languages that don't have the Word of God in their language, we realize that we have a lot of work to do in our, in our world, our Christian world, to take the gospel to every creature. The Old Testament was copied by kings and by priests and by fathers. The New Testament was copied by church leaders and pastors. And, and you just have this plethora of information going on. I want to give you a few caveats before I get into the principles tonight. And so you understand where I'm coming from. My, I call it my views of preservation, my views of translation, sort of, uh, sort of me just sort of being transparent so that there's no surprises by the time we get to the end of tonight's lesson. Whatever view of preservation or translation we take, it needs to be logically coherent. Uh, in other words, it needs to work before 1611. God did not give the world the Bible in 1611 with the King James. There was a Bible before that. It's the Bible that we use, but there were Bibles before that as well, and there were Bibles in other languages. And so when I'm arguing about the principles we use to find God's Word for our language, those arguments should work before 1611, and those really those arguments should work in other languages. If my argument only works for the English-speaking people, I'm probably a little twisted somewhere in my logic. And so I want to make sure that that's clear tonight. The second caveat, if I can say it this way, is that I view the church as the pillar and the ground of truth. Amen. And I do that because that's what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. That, that verse has a special meaning for me uh, growing up in a preacher's home. 
Because that whole verse says that he's writing to Timothy, that thou mayest knowest how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. And as a preacher's kid, that verse got shared with me quite often. My dad would be sitting on the platform and I would be sitting uh, with my, my mom and my sisters and, and I would have sometimes maybe a difficult time sitting still and my, my dad would come off the platform and he would take me out uh, the back doors and we would go out uh, to a stone table out to my left where they, we'd have dinner on the grounds and there was a hickory tree out there and we would have a come to Jesus meeting. And he would give an invitation and I would repent and we'd go back in. On one particular Sunday, I, I was probably, I don't know, five or six, my dad took me out seven times that particular service. You say, why? Because seven is a number for perfection. I wanted to get it right, I guess. I don't know. But seven times my dad said, son, you've got to learn how to behave thyself in the house of God. And so Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to know how to behave in the house of God because the house of God is a, the church of God, the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the ground of truth. And so what I believe is that God gave the words to Jesus, his son, God in the flesh. Jesus said in John 17, thou hast given me the words and I, have, and I have given it to them and they have received it. So Jesus gave his words to that first church. They received it and the church became the custodian for the New Testament. So I, when I'm looking at preservation, I'm very, very interested in what local churches have used in church history. Very interested in that because I, if we're deviating from what God has given to the churches for 2,000 years and, and we found something better, that raises some really red flags in my mind. So the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And so I tie the perpetuity of the church, the fact that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I tie that as a necessary correlation to the fact that there's this preservation of the scriptures as well. A third caveat is God's words were pure the moment he inspired them. They didn't have to be continually purified. When David wrote Psalm 12, 6, and 7, it was God's pure word the, the moment that he wrote it. Uh, I, I don't look in every single language to find the seventh translation in that language. I look for the fact that God has given his word. It's a pure word. It's a promised word. It's a preserved word. And I look for what the body of believers have been using. And the validity of a translation, at least humanly speaking, is tied to the text in which it was taken and the technique in which they used uh, to translate it. So I believe in the doctrine of preservation. This is not an academic issue to me. It's a doctrine. And the word doctrine means teaching. And if the Bible teaches that God would preserve his word, then by definition, preservation becomes a doctrine based on his promises, based on his purposes, and based on his providence. So the Old and New Testament were read uh, by the everyday person. They were read by the common people. The common people heard Jesus gladly. Uh, and preservation, even in the Bible, could extend to translation. Paul, you read the book of Acts, he stood up and he, he always seemed to be beckoning with his hand. If you read the book of Acts, he's beckoning with his hand. And the Bible says in the book of Acts that Paul spoke to them in the Hebrew tongue. But when Luke wrote what Paul said, he wrote it in Greek. So what Paul said in one language was translated into another language and it was the word of God. And so I believe that this, even though it's translated and God didn't originally give it in English, it's still the Word of God. It's God's Word in my language. And so there are practical reasons, just by way of introduction, that we should have a main translation, a dominant translation, a, a major translation that the church uses. Some of those is for corporate reading. The illustration from when I was a 10-year-old boy illustrates that. It's confusion if everybody's just reading their own translation. Corporate reading is a great reason to have, from a practical standpoint, one agreed upon translation. Another one is Bible memory. I, I grew up in Georgia. There was a famous pastor in Georgia, and he had had a lot of the Bible memorized. 
from the King James Bible. And when I was in my teen years, this pastor switched from the King James Bible to the New American Standard Bible. And it was interesting, as I would maybe listen to him preach on a Sunday morning, uh, that when he would quote the Bible, he still quoted from the King James. He had made the mental shift in what he was reading, but what he had memorized, uh, he just couldn't get away from it. We want everybody to memorize the same thing. This idea of corporate memory. How about corporate worship? Or even this, I like the fact that this is a connection to my heritage. I'm reading the same Bible that my parents read, that my grandparents read, that my great-grandparents read. There's heritage here. It's just like when we sing the hymns. It's connecting us generationally. So, so does this translation. It connects us generationally. And so with that in mind, as sort of some caveats, let me give you three principles, three considerations, three necessary ingredients, what we're looking for in, in a translation and understand how the King James matches up to this. First of all, we want to consider the manuscripts that were translated. And that may sound technical, manuscripts, what are manuscripts? Manuscripts is basically something that's handwritten. And to say it another way, it's something that is manually scripted. Scripted. It's, it's manually, by hand, scripted. It's, it's a manuscript. And over time, you begin to have these handwritten copies. And probably all of the apostles were left-handed, I, I would believe. And uh, Jesus probably wrote in the, the ground left with his left hand. And uh, because I'm left-handed, I, I want to have, have heroes that were left-handed, I guess. And I don't know what hand they wrote with, but they wrote these by hand. And after a while, you begin to collect these handwritten copies and you begin to sort of compile them into one place and the manuscripts become a text. And then you take those texts and you begin to translate from them. And so when we're talking about the manuscripts, it's really, really important we understand the source. There are primarily two different texts today that are used for translation purposes. Primarily two. And they go by a lot of different names. Uh, one would be translated from the majority of manuscripts, and sometimes it's called the Byzantine text. You can see it in your notes. Sometimes it's called the Antiochian text, taken from uh, the Antioch of Syria, where they were first called Christians, and where a lot of early Bible translations originated from as they began to translate it, even in the early 140s and 150s, beginning to translate it as part of their missionary endeavors. Uh, and then it's sometimes called the traditional text, sometimes called the received text. I like the term traditional text because traditionally, this is the text that has been used by Bible-believing churches. Received text, because this is what the church received from the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Then there's another text. There are roughly, let me say this for just a minute, there are roughly about 6,000 manuscripts. Just let that sink in for just a moment. After 2,000 years of church history, there's roughly still almost 6,000 manuscripts. The vast majority of them, 57, 5,800 or so, would be more aligned with what we're calling this majority family, and maybe a hundred or less would be identified with this minority. And that minority is sometimes called the critical text. Sometimes it's called the Alexandrian text. Uh, sometimes maybe called the UBS, United Bible Society text, or maybe even the Nestle's Allen text. A lot of different names, and sometimes when you read on this, maybe one writer likes one name, and if it's not the name you're used to, it, it can be confusing. So these are pretty loosely used as synonyms. What, what difference does it make? In your notes, I have a few, uh, few descriptions of these majority and minority texts. The majority text is closer in location to where the New Testament was written. Now, we sometimes say we believe the Bible from cover to cover, and we, we say it's all God's Word. Now, I understand that there are some parts in the Bible that are not inspired. The maps are not inspired, but they're helpful. 
Okay, so in your God-breathed maps, maybe in the back of your Bible, if you have them, and if you're using a digital Bible, you'll have to cheat because you probably don't have the maps with you, right? That's why we have to have the Word of God printed. And so we got these maps here. If you look at the maps, you'll start seeing in the back of your Bible, you'll see cities like Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi, all the places where New Testament letters were written. And where those original letters were received, there were a lot of copies that sprang up around them. And so this is closer to the location. Well, the minority text would be closer to the date. They're not in the same location, but they're older. And so someone who wants to use that base would say that oldest is best. I want to show you something tonight just by way of illustration. I have a Bible here that's in this case right here that... Uh, for all practical purposes, let me cover this right here because it has my first name on it, just in case anybody zooms in. My first name is a great mystery. I sign everything J. Michael Lester. And the reason I do that is because as a kid, I grew up watching Julius Irving, Dr. J. And I said, one day, I'm going to get a doctor degree so people can call me Dr. J. And so I sign everything Dr. J. Michael Lester. So sometimes people want to know, what does a J stand for? I'm not going to tell you. It's, it's a great mystery. It's, it, it'll come out maybe in the rapture. I'll leave this behind. So this is a Bible that for all practical purposes looks brand new. Looks brand new. In fact, you can still smell the leather. If, if you could hear it open, I don't know if this mic will pick it up. Do you hear that? If you listen real close, you can actually hear the binding. If you didn't know any better, you would think this is a brand new Bible. It's not. This is the Bible I received in my high school graduation, May 18th, 1990. This Bible is almost, almost 30 years old. But it looks brand new. Why is that? One simple reason. I don't use it. It stays in a box. Because I don't use it, it's going to last a long time. I guarantee you I won't have this Bible for 30 years. Why? Because I use it. Here's another one. This one uh, I got from my dad. I think he knows he gave it to me. <clears throat> this Bible was given to my dad on the event of his ordination, 1982. 1982. This Bible is pretty old. It's older even than this Bible. 1982. Doesn't even have a dog-eared page in it. It looks brand new. The reason is because my dad never used it. The church had great intentions, but they bought my dad a new American standard. That's what this is. A New American Standard. He goes, what is that? Well, we know you preach from the King James, but we thought maybe this would help you in your study. He says, well, thank you. And he's gracious. And then it went on the shelf. And then I appropriated it, or he gave it to me, one of those two. Uh, and it became an illustration for my Bible doctrines class. All right. So this is, a, this is a Bible that will last a long time. So here's my point. Oldest isn't necessarily best. Oldest may argue against the fact that anybody used it. Okay, so just keep that in mind, that when churches use the Word of God, it sort of wears out. So we talk about this closer to location, closer to date. Here's another characteristic. One is distributed widely. It's throughout that whole Byzantine Empire, that whole uh, empire there in that Holy Roman world. One is primarily in, in Egypt, where there's a great climate for preservation. One has been used and recognized by churches throughout centuries. One was hidden for centuries, not used. 
Uh, one is a longer text, one is a shorter text. In fact, one, counting just the pages, would say that the shorter text would be the equivalent of missing most of the book of Revelation. It's, it's not missing the book of Revelation, but it's missing the equivalent of that many pages. Or, as they would perhaps argue, that this one that's longer that's been added to. And there's a whole debate on that. But uh, the fact is, one is longer, one is older. One is newer, and one is older. One has a long history of use in the church, and one has about 150 years of use in the church. One starts with the assumption or the foundation that God would preserve his word. One starts with the assumption or the foundation that God needs to restore his word, or at least man needs to restore his word. And these are some differences in this text. So we, first of all, we look at the manuscripts. Number two, the second principle, the message that is conveyed. The message that is conveyed. What does this text say about Jesus? What does it say about God? What does it say about the Trinity? Is it accurate? Uh, what do these doctrines not say? And I'm, uh, you know, so there's a chart here. When we look at the, the Bibles, you can see 1 John 5, 7 being compared to the, in the King James in what's called the English Standard Version, popular Bible today, used by a lot of reformers. 1 John 5, 7, we, we, we know that verse. We use that verse often. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's a, it's a great verse on the Trinity. In the ESV, it says, for there are three that testify. Now, it isn't that the ESV is against the Trinity as much as is the ESV has said that the minority text is better and the minority text is a little bit weaker on the deity of Christ and the Trinity and some of these things. John 7, 8, Jesus is speaking. He says, go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. And you read in the passage later on, Jesus goes to the feast. Not a big deal. He says, I'm not going yet. And then he goes. That little word yet is sort of important. And newer translations from the other text, you go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus says, I'm not going to the feast, and then he goes. One says, I'm not going up yet, and that gives the, the indication that I'm going to go up later, and then he goes. No big deal, no contradiction at all in what Jesus says. One says, I'm not going up, and then all of a sudden he's there, like, wait a minute, didn't you say you weren't coming, Right. Uh, it's a little bit weaker there in the person of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter number 1, the genealogies, which I know we all spend time in, and we don't skip over it. There are some things here in this genealogy that's sort of interesting. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says that Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa. And then in verse 10, Ezekiel begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Ammon. When you look in the newer translations... Asa becomes Asaph, which was a Levite. He wouldn't be in the line of Judah. And Ammon becomes Amos, and that was a prophet. He wasn't in the line of Judah either. In other words, it's a genealogical error. So we have to say, did the Holy Spirit inspire an error? Or perhaps there's maybe another text we should be trusting. In Revelation 8, verse 13, I like this verse because it's not so loaded in the sense that it's attacking the, the gospel per se. Revelation 8.13, John says, I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. In Revelation 8.13 in the ESV, I looked and I heard an eagle. Most people aren't going to split hairs about eagles and angels. Most people may not even capture it. And you say, what's the big deal? In Revelation 14, verse 6, John says, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. In the ESV, it says, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Here's the problem. In the ESV, you said, I saw another angel. And you're like, well, where was the first one? It's not there. It was an eagle, right? And so when John says, I saw another angel, it's consistent with the text because the text just said, here's an angel flying in heaven. Oh, and here's another one. 
Over here in the other translation, here's an eagle flying in the heaven. Oh, by the way, here's another angel. And you're like, well, where was the first one? It's just not there. So we look at the message. Is it, is it numerically accurate? Is it genealogically accurate? Is it historically accurate? Is it, is, it, is it reverential to the deity of Christ? And then finally tonight, we look at the method that was used. What's the philosophy behind these translators and their work? What, what are they using? There's really two technical terms, and I, I'm going to give you a definition, then I'll illustrate it. Formal equivalency is an attempt to translate the words. So we have this language. We want to take the words from this language and put it into the words of this language. Dynamic equivalency says we've got this sentence here. I think I know what it means. And I want to take the thought of that sentence and translate that thought into another sentence. So one deals with the words. One deals with the thoughts. Here's my belief. The Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words. So inspiration is at a word level, not a thought level, at a word level. So if God is inspiring the words, we need to translate the words. If we're not translating the words, we're really not translating, we're interpreting. Let me show you an example of this. Now, uh, for those of you who are bilingual, I'm about to slaughter Spanish here, so I'm going to give you a heads up. And you probably won't ask me to be your translator. But I want you to pretend for a moment that I'm a missionary from another country, and I speak Spanish, and I have an interpreter tonight. And what I say is one simple sentence, Dios odia el pecado. That's what you're supposed to say, amen. Even if you don't know what it means, you just say amen. Say, Brother Lester, did you speak in tongues? Pastor, I'm not speaking in tongues. Okay. The simple definition of that is something like this. God hates Sin, it's word for word. But if somebody took my sentence and said something like this, God hates marijuana, God hates Facebook, God hates this, and God hates smoking, and God hates drinking, and God hates gambling, and God hates gossip, those may be true, but it's not what I said. It's what he interpreted. And when we start allowing interpretation to become the, the focus of our Bible, we're trusting a man now and not the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Let me show you how this works out. In Romans 12:1, a verse that's used often, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. On the far extreme of dynamic equivalency, there's a translation called the message. It's really out there, and I think you'll see it in the example here. Notice Romans 12:1, and if I didn't tell you this was Romans 12:1, you wouldn't know it, okay? So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering, embracing what God does for you as the best thing you can do for Him. That's not what God said. That's not what God said. I want what God said. I don't want what this man thinks what God means. I want to know what God said. Zechariah 13.6 is messianic in its context. And one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? And we, we immediately think of Calvary. We just came through the, the, the resurrection season. And we think about the wounds in his hand. And he said, these are the which I was wounded in the house of my friends. But notice what the message does with that verse. And if someone says, and so where did you get that black eye? <laughs> They'll say, I ran into a door at a friend's house. <laughs> Can I just help you with something? That's not what God said. It's possible to have the right manuscripts and use the wrong method. I believe Luther did this in his Psalms when he was translating the German Bible. He really wanted the Psalms to rhyme for the German-speaking people. It was his goal. I want these to rhyme. And so he took a lot of liberty with the Hebrew text to make it rhyme. And so that wasn't necessarily form. It was more dynamic. I, he had the right text, but I wouldn't have agreed with his method. It's just as possible to use the right method with the wrong manuscripts. 
The ESV would be formal in its equivalency. It uses the right method, but it uses the wrong manuscripts. And as a result of that, it's not as trustworthy as the Bible that we've been using here at Lancaster Baptist Church. God wants us to trust his word, not doubt it. It's important that we have the right word of God in our hands. But it's even more important that we have it in our heart. I'm not interested in somebody who knows how to tuck the right Bible into their hand, but they never read it. If we never spend time in this, it won't, this isn't an ancient relic. This isn't a, a talisman or a charm or a, a, a lucky uh, sort of thing that we can just sort of like magically, it's going to change us. No, no, this is something we study. It's something we, we're into. It's something that we feed from. We, it nourishes us. It's the living word of God. We've got to be in it if it's going to affect us. Putting it under our pillow at night doesn't affect us by some osmosis. Holding it in our Bible with our, in, the, in our hand and having the right smile doesn't affect our heart. We've got to get the Word of God in our heart. The King James comes from a line of manuscripts that's been used by local churches since translations began. We can trust what God has given to the church and what the church has historically used. The King James has a message that's historically accurate. It's theologically accurate. It's Christologically accurate. It's, it's, numer, it's numerically accurate. In other words, it's trustworthy where it reports these facts. It utilizes a method that looks at the words and not just the thoughts. And so when we look at the manuscripts and we look at the message and we look at the method, those necessary ingredients are found in the Bible we use. And so, like we learned in Sunday school, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand how? Alone. I stand alone on the Word of God the B-I-B-L-E. The King James Bible is a trusted translation with all the necessary ingredients. So the question tonight becomes, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? And I hope tonight that'll help, help you as you are putting your mind around the fact that we use a Bible that we can trust. And I hope you'll have confidence in the Word of God that Pastor has stood behind all of these years.